0: My name is Seth, I'm one of the pastors here on staff and I get to walk us through um, the text this morning. We're in the middle of the, our series in the book of Exodus and Exodus has been all about, as, as we just heard, it's, it's God making himself known in a world in which he's been long forgotten. And today I actually get to walk us through both chapters three and chapters four. So it's a lot of text. What I'm gonna kind of do is I'm gonna give us a, a flyover and then I'm gonna zoom in and hit a, of, hit a couple of key points. But there's, this, there's, a, there's a, a reorientation or a shift in our thinking that I want us to consider before we um, get into this text, and here 's kind of some of like what I mean by this is so so I 'm in school in St. Louis, and I have to go back about three times a year and uh, Last year I had to go a couple extra times in that, but I found that I really like being on airplanes for a couple of reasons: one is uh, I'm, there are two things happen either one, um, the people ignore you sitting next to you, and you get a lot of work done, or you get to trap someone into a really intense conversation with you for about three hours. And so, so you're either like unpacking someone's childhood or getting a lot of reading done. And so it's, I'm like, win-win for me, I'm fine. But I always kind of get, I'm in, you know, Southwest C, you know, and so that means that I get C is for, you know, center seat, you know, and you sit in the middle and you don't, and so you kind of sit down and you don't really want to have a conversation with both people because that's awkward, you're kind of turning back and forth. So you kind of pick which which one of these people is going to get the full Seth treatment, you know, and... And you sit down. And just this past week, you know, in, the, in this text in particular, um, I've been thinking about feet a lot. So you think that's weird, um, but you're going to think about feet a lot here for a minute too. So, it's, so Moses is walking out in the wilderness, and it says here um, that when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, so God appears in a burning bush. Moses is walking around the sheep. He sees a burning bush. He turns aside to see the burning bush. Um, verse four, when he saw that he turned aside to see, God called out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And Lord said, Do not come near. Take off your take your sandals off your feet. And I'm kind of thinking, why why would you take your sandals off of feet? You know? And you know, I'm sitting on the plane and I sit next there's a, some guy and I said, Hi, my name's Bill. He says, I'm Bill, there's a woman from Germany sitting next to me, and I'm sitting with one of these people I'm gonna to talk to. And Bill starts taking his shoes off. <laughs> and all of a sudden I feel like I'm trapped, and he's, you know, he t- he takes his shoes off and then he starts to, you know, peel his socks off. And then I see these, you know, Pringles, chips, toenails. You know. And I'm thinking, well, I know all I need to know about Bill. I'm not talking to him, you know? You know, and so guess I'm talking to this lady, you know? So, so it's, you know, I, I hear his name, what's that mean? And I'm going, I'm not, and so I'm thinking, you know, I see him start taking his shoes off and I'm like, Is there a burning bush somewhere around here? Are we on holy ground? You know, what are you doing? You know, I'm thinking this guy's a crazy person. And then uh, I went to class, you know, with a bunch of people like also getting higher degrees in theology. I'm thinking all these people got to be like normal. Um, And then we get to class we go around. Everybody says their name. And then right when the lecturer starts lecturing, two people take their shoes off in class. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, this... There are problems in America, and this is, I think, the most undiscussed problem in America is shoes off in pub- You know, I'm going, some of you have really bad feet, and I know that's just statistics, you know, but but there's a thing, there's a thing for that. It's called shoes, you know, you keep them on. So, but wh- so then I was thinking, why is it so, like, why, do I, why does this bother me so much, these people showing me their Pringles-looking uh, toenails, you know, and I'm thinking, well... So I'm thinking like why do we why do we take our shoes off some places and other places we don't, you know, and it's you well you, there's an intimacy thing, you know, there's something about you come to a home, you don't want to track in the nasty stuff you've been stepping in, and so you leave your shoes at the door, especially in like Eastern cultures. Sometimes it's like a comfortability thing, a hospitality thing. Uh, you know so welcome to our home you'll leave your shoes you know this is your home my my house is your house so like you take your shoes off and you go to bed because like that's the place of where you're safe you know and and so what what i'm kind of thinking through and about this is you know one i keep thinking people take their shoes off i'm like did god tell you to do that um because if he didn't put them back on you know but then but then but mostly it's this this reality that we tend to look at things like this and ask like why did he take his sandals off his feet and we try and like think about it abstractly but God gives us reason you're standing on holy ground and so what actually is going on when we read Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 and here's the reorientation I want us to make is that I want us to go from thinking that we're reading the book of Exodus to discover and uncover and mine these kind of like abstract, timeless realities about Moses or the life of Israel, and rather see um, the book of Exodus as God revealing himself bit by bit, story by story, interaction with interaction. And so even in this little bit here, what we learn about who God is, is that his presence creates holiness. Hey, I'm here. Therefore, this is holy ground. And, there, and that holiness has something about this inviting, hospitable. We kind of think of holiness as like this otherworldly abstract abstention. But actually, God is showing us that holiness has something to do with proximity and being set apart and close to God. And so um, even going back to the text that was just read is this idea that when God says, I am who I am. And he says, this is who I am. I am who I am. And it kind of at first sounds like a non-answer. Right, you picture kind of some some hippie, you know, who's, what's going on, man, what it is, you know? And it's like, it is what it is. And it's just like some, some kind of like cliche, nothing saying. And so, but God chooses to reveal himself in his name in, I would say, somewhat of an obscure way. And why does he do that? And Walter Brueggemann says this about Exodus 3.14. He says, the entire Exodus narrative is an exposition or an explanation of the name of Exodus 3.14, requiring all its powerful verbs for an adequate expression. That to some degree, when God says, tell them that I am sent you, he's saying, watch and pay attention and you will over time learn what my name really means. That I am the God who shows up and sets the captives free. That I'm the God who resists the oppressors. That I'm the God who sees people in their screams and in their cries and shows up. And I'm the God who can't be manipulated according to your timeline, but I'm the God who sovereignly and perfectly and with a great deal of goodness moves and acts. And so as I look through Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 here, I want us to begin to think through this reality that the Lord... I am who I am, Yahweh, that He is showing himself to us bit by bit, chunk by chunk. And um, so, so what we're going to see is actually that God is going to show us three things I argue in this text in, in this text, three things about Him and our relationship to Him. The first. so it says that God, the Lord, is not limited by our expectations, our circumstances or our inadequacies that we put God in all types of boxes and what he can and can't do. And we put ourselves in boxes and what we can and can't do on the basis of who we are and where we've been. But what God's gonna show us in this text is these three things. I'm gonna highlight these three, th- obviously like this is two full chapters. We're gonna get an overview, but these are gonna be the three highlights that God is not limited by our expectations, our circumstances or our inadequacies. Let's pray and then I'll walk us through this text. God, thank you for choosing to speak to Moses um, in the book of Exodus and that's recorded for us. Thank you that uh, and we can now learn from how you spoke to Moses. I pray that we would see your character and your heart and the way that you operate in this text. And I ask that you will give us confidence that you are a sovereign Lord who acts in history um, according to your plan, not necessarily according to our qualifications. In the name of your son, we pray, amen. Amen. So going back to this idea of, of the name, right? This is, this is how relationships work, right? Um, you know, my wife and I, or my wife's pregnant and, and so my wife and I are pregnant. It's kind of how it works, I guess. You know, like we are having a baby, she's having a baby. Um, and we're in that phase now where she's 31 weeks, I think, which is kind of where you officially feel large and people start asking you probing questions that are annoying, like, like what are you gonna name it? You know, and, it's, and then the people offer you their suggestions, which are mostly kind, but we, we, we figured the name out. You know, and we're not telling you. So that's kind of how it's going to go. Is, and, but why? Why are we not telling? Well, here's why. It's because everyone has a story attached with every name, especially you know, my wife. She works in elementary school. She's a speech therapist, and so which means that like all of her friends have all of these names. And all these baggages, with, oh, Well, I, let's name him, you know, Billy. Well, we can't name him Billy because that dude with the toenails and the airplane's name is Billy. So boom, <laughs> Billy's out, you know. Um, well, what about, you know, you know, Steve? Oh no, you know, my friend, you know, so-and-so, she has a third grader named Steve and he bit someone once, so we can't name him Steve, you know, and so it's like all these stories and the, the stories are imported into the meaning of the name. And so this is is kind of the way that relationships work, the way that names work, that God is bit by bit gonna show us about what it's like. And so I want us to really kind of really get into Moses' shoes here and try and inhabit his worldview and what he's thinking about as he's doing this. So think about Moses in this moment. He's walking a bunch of sheep in the middle of the desert, far away from Egypt, and he sees a bush burning but not consumed. And what is Moses' first thought? What would your first thought be? I shouldn't have eaten those mushrooms. That was his first. You know, like what is the? Oh my gosh! You know, I've been out here by myself too long. You know, what is going? And so he's like, I'm going to investigate what's going on here. So Moses goes and he walks off to the side and he sees the bush. And then he hears the booming voice of God. We don't really know what it sounds like, but we do know because of verse six that it made Moses afraid when he heard God's heard God's voice. If there's some measure of when you know, you know, so Moses was a murderer like one chapter ago, it's probably been like 20 years, but when you know that you're a sinner and when you, or even just when you know that you're just a human and God is God and you hear his voice, it's, it's scary. I hear people say like, well, if God came close, I'd be less afraid. Well, or you might be more afraid. Most often when people see God's presence or see God's face or see something related to God in the Old Testament, the reaction is Fear. God speaks. Verse seven. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry, that could be translated scream, because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of a land and to make and to make to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of all these peoples. And now behold, the screams of the people of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The voice of God, loud, commanding. What's going on in Moses' mind? What do you think? Well, first we knew he was afraid. But then also thinking about this reality. And I want us to kind of, this is gonna kind of a sober moment here to think about this. Is it's been 400 years that Israel has been in slavery. 400, how long is 400 years? You know, I was watching college football last night and there was a quarterback playing who was born after September 11th happened you know, full pads, you know. What was life like in 1919, 100 years ago? What was life like in 18, you know, in 1619, 400 years ago, the first ship carrying slaves from Africa hit U.S. soil, 400 years So like, I don't know if Moses was feeling this, but I just want to kind of honestly feel this, that I hear God say, I've heard the cries, I've heard the cries, I've heard the cries. There's a piece of you in your heart where you go, well, then where have you been? Some of you have had this, where like, you know, parents step out of your life for 10 years and they come back and they want to be let right back in. And you say, on what basis? Where have you been? What makes you think you get to trounce back on in here? and be helpful all of a sudden. This is 400 years of silence. Kind of adding trauma to trauma. Not only am I in, slaves, in, in slavery, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has mostly just kind of let it happen. I just kind of want, as, you know, Christian to Christian, brother to sister, brother, like, are we, are we ready to deal with that reality, that uh, this is, so this is not only, not only is this four hundred years of silence, but this is the first of three times in the scriptures where God is silent for four hundred year chunks. In the exile, and then before Jesus comes, He's silent for another four hundred years. So going back to the big idea, um, is the Lord limited by our expectations? What do we, how do we handle this? How do we deal with this? I expect God to show up when I want him to. What is, what is Moses thinking here? You know, I, even just last night, I'm watching the news, you know, because I'm watching college football, which means I get to see ads for the news, which is why you're like, this is why I don't watch the news, you know? And But it feels, you know, was it 36, 38 mass shootings in America so far this year? And I hear about another one and I think, I don't wanna hear about this, turn the news off. And I'm like beginning to feel calloused to the reality of, mass shoot, and you know and then the politicians start talking and it just you know makes things worse and you know I don't really expect politicians to be great at solving problems that's not their job their job's to get reelected you know so that's uh that's how I feel about that you know and you know it's you know not enough guns too many guns you know whatever yeah, yada yada and I'm but I, you know and I can be I think it's right to be frustrated with politicians to demand that they try and be a part of installing just systems into our world. But at the end of the day, like, I'm not mostly frustrated with them. I feel like I'm frustrated with the Lord. You know, at the end, like these people are, you know, God's sovereign over them. And, I've, and I kind of feel like Moses to some degree, you know, how long are you gonna let this go on? Oh, you want back in? That's convenient and i just want us to be able to deal honestly with the fact that like sometimes the the real pain in these issues in these situations is not the slavery but it's the silence that comes along with the slavery some of you are being oppressed right now maybe it's your bad husband maybe it's your family system maybe it's your workplace maybe it's you know generational patterns maybe it's your addictions and that is really hard but what's really hard is your sense that God is silent in the midst of it. Some of you are skeptics. You don't believe in a lot of this stuff because you've experienced God as totally silent your whole life. And I just wanna kind of like highlight for all of us that the Bible does not hide the fact that God goes through periods where he's silent. And in fact, you know, the, the Bible teaches us how to pray in these moments. You know, I had, a, I had a good friend of mine and he was telling me about how he read this book by some Jewish person and how the book was all about why you should be happy all the time. And I thought, well, that guy's a terrible Jewish person because he needs to read Exodus or something, you know, like happy all the time. That, you know, have you met a Jewish person? That's not usually, I'm Jewish. So that's kind of, so, you know. But the Jews learn how to pray in the times where God is silent. And here's an example of one of their prayers, Psalm 13. It says, this, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How many generations did the people of Israel pray this before God shows up to Moses in the wilderness? About 400 years worth. So I, you know, I, I fully believe that God sees, I fully believe that he cares, I fully believe that he's there, but I also believe that his timeline is often not the timeline that we want or the timeline that we think is best. And the question is, when God's timeline is different than my timeline, what do I do? Because sometimes that feels like silence. And these are the types of prayers I want us to, as Redemption Gateway to be comfortable praying. Sometimes people feel like if they prayed like that, that meant they didn't have faith. Some feel, sometimes we feel like if I prayed like that, then I'm like doubting God's goodness. No, but actually sometimes we pray like this because we believe God is good and our circumstances are making us seem like he's not good. We see the gap. I know you're good, but it feels like you're not. God, please explain the gap. What's going on? You know, has, has God really forgotten the person who wrote this Psalm? Has he really hide his faith? Not necessarily, but that's his emotional reality. That's his experience of what's going on. My question for us is, does your faith have space for prayer like that? Or even along those lines, has there been a time or are you still in a time where God feels like he's silent and distant? Because if that's true, um, either it has happened or it will happen. All Christians go through phases where it feels like God is silent. But this reality that the Bible is not just going to make that feel shiny but they tend to, the Bible's very realistic about some of these things. So when when Moses goes this, but Moses said to God, so after hearing the booming voice of God, he says, go to Pharaoh, and Moses goes, ah, who am I? You're the guy with the burning bush trick, you go do that, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt. Why would I do this? Words of time in your life when your expectations or your desires were out of line with God's expectations. Because even if your expectations were unrealistic or crazy, sometimes your expectations are rooted in good things that you think God loves, but that gap between what God did and your expectations has to be grieved and prayed through and talked through. This is one of the gifts of again therapists or counselors, but even just this ability to pray soberly and to pray with disappointed hearts and to pray God, please explain the silence, please explain the gap between my expectation and my experience, help me understand. This has been a huge theme so far, that this, the first thing God says, it's been 400 years and his first words are Moses, Moses, verse four. The author had to know that the silence of God was a theme to be explained to her. So God's not limited by our expectations here's the other thing I want us to see is that God's not limited by our circumstances, right? So not just our expectations, but our circumstances. So think with me here. So Moses should not be the guy who is actually the one who's being used to set people free. So think about this. So so Moses shouldn't have made it past one day old because, you know, the Pharaoh was killing the, the, the Israelite boys. He should not have made it past one year old. And then but his, his the midwives and his and his mother saved him, and then he was preserved until about three months, and he's put in the river, and then Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, and then his um, he's actually raised in this household, and so okay, so he survived, he made it past the point of death. But then what happens is Moses, who was um, Jewish, was actually raised by totally pagan foster parents. That Pharaoh's household, where he's kind of not fully adopted, but he's but he's he's um, being fostered in there. He's raised in this absolutely idolatrous pagan anti-god environment and this is the way in which his psychology was formed that he was raised up not believing in Yahweh the one true God not believing in the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob but instead believing in the sun god the moon god the this god the that god and he was taught and trained just like the in the magician's house of all all the pharaohs and so not only is he is he trained up and raised up and his psychology is shaped by a pagan foster family but he also goes to like the elite cream of the crop pagan private education that he's taught to read and to write. And he's trained up in how to be a thinker. You know, he is like voted most likely to succeed Jew because none of the other Jews got this education and he's an up and comer and he's in Pharaoh's household. He's, he's rising star. You kind of picture him as literally like he's the golden child of the Jewish people. And then Moses has a bad day and he murders someone and runs into the desert I just picture Moses in chapter three walking around poking sheep, stepping in like sheep dung, thinking like, I could have been something. (laughs) You know, I could have, I could have been a big deal in Pharaoh's house. I could have, you know, for the Jews, you know, I could have, I could have risen to the top. I could have been faithful over time. I could have done, but now he's maybe throwing a pity party because he, you know, looked left, looked right and killed someone and then ran. Some of you have done this. You had a promising career path and then you, we're impulsive and dumb and now your entry level job again. Some of you think back, you could have been something, but instead you are. And literally just the disappointment of like the career gap, you know, where he's now poking sheep in the wilderness and he shows up and so not only is is Moses by himself, you know, done his best to ruin um, God's plans for him to be, you know, the one who had set his people free? But also now he's just kind of given up and he's poking around sheep in the di- well And he's like, who am I? Why me? You know, sometimes we ask why me when we're suffering, and sometimes we ask why me when God's calling us to do something. Why me? Someone else do that. Bystander effect. Someone else will serve and kids. Someone else will serve this, you know, why me? I just, I'm just me. I'm nothing. You know, when God says to him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for all Moses knows, he's like, you know, Billy, Timmy, Tom, you know, like it's been 400 years. Who are these people? Why me? Why do you want me? You know? And so just the audacity of Moses after hearing a booming voice from a bush to say, I'm hearing you. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. You know, you know, what would you do if a bush talked to you with fire? You'd say like, whatever you say. I'm you know, like, is what you think, though, you'd say. But not only that, is Israel now is, they've been enslaved for 400 years, being totally oppressed and, and dominated. And now God's gonna use them to be light to the nations. God is gonna use these people Um to be uh, signposts of the kingdom of God. God's going to use these people. Like they don't have any background. They don't have any education. They're, they're not impressive. They're poor, but God begins to, uh, you know, address these these uh, objections one at a time. Not only that, but he begins to address even like fu- future ob- objections, uh, uh, objections. So look what it says in um, three verse 21. I will give the people favor inside of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. So the Jews are kind of saying, well, I'm going to wander out in the desert and then, then starve to death because we'll be poor. We don't have anything. We have to stay we have to stay in the oppressor's house because they feed us. Don't buy the hand that feeds you. Why would I leave and now when you go into poverty just, I'd rather be a slave than be um, starving to death in wilderness? But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, any woman who leaves in her house, for silver and gold and clothing, you shall put on your sons and your daughters, you shall plunder the Egyptians. God is saying, Not only am I going to get you out of here, but I'm gonna get you out of here with some bounty. You know, there's gonna be plunder. I'm gonna get you out, I mean, the money that you've, the capital you've been accruing for the Egyptians for 400 years for free slave labor, guess what? You know, there's like, this is, you know, like the old time reparations. You're gonna take from them the money that you earned for them and you're going to get out in wood. God's saying, I'm not just gonna set you out to, you know, fail, but I'm gonna set you up for success when you get out of here. What are some ways in which you believe that your circumstances limit God's ability to use you for his glory. Maybe you ruined your career. Maybe you ruined your family. Maybe you went to the pagan private school. Maybe you are literally a farmer and you thought you were gonna be a CEO. (laughs) God's not limited by that. That God chooses the weak of the world to prove that it's not in his strength, in our strength, but it's in his strength. So even Moses' objection here, but who am I that I should go? How does God respond? He says, listen, Moses, you're good, believe in yourself. No, that's not what he says. (laughs) He says, I will be with you. This idea of the presence of God, of God being with, in the Old Testament, whenever God is with you, that means he's empowering you to accomplish the goal that he has for your life, that he is present with you, helping you um, be faithful to what he's calling you to do. That the with is always a matter of empowering unto service. It's not just like a teddy bear that you hug and, oh, God's with me. It makes me feel better. But it's, this is this, this strength and a thrust of force and an engagement and an ability to participate and to lean in. So much of our culture right now, it's like, hey, you know, you got the deck stack you get to, but guess what? You know, there's a fire in your heart and you can trust yourself, you know, and do big things for God. Risk it all, go for it. I believe in you. You should believe in you. And that's just not the biblical message ever. That's just self esteem ism. That's not Christianity that God's not even necessarily interested in building your self-esteem. He's interested in you believing and trusting in his providential presence to accomplish what he's calling you to do. Some of you are deeply insecure and you keep trying to talk yourself out of being insecure And I really think that sometimes when you're deeply insecure, that is the time when you're most ready to connect with the Lord. Because when you're really aware of your weakness and your inadequacy, this is when God is actually going to help you trust in him and not in your own capacities. So God's not limited by our expectations or our circumstances. And so getting into chapter four here, there's, you know, I kind of want to, you know, I talked about like some feet stuff earlier. I'm gonna take it up a notch we're gonna talk about weirder stuff. So, so people ask every now and then, like, how long does it take you to do sermon prep? And you know, usually the answer is like eight to 12 hours, um, except for when you have a text like this one I'm about to read, then it becomes like double that. So read with me Exodus 4, 24 through 26. So here's why this is crazy, is God comes to Moses and he says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses goes, great, I'll go. And then right after that, it says this, at a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death what? And then Zipporah took a flintstone and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him be alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. You know, The first time I read this, getting ready to preach this, I thought, you know, like when you read something the first time, you know, you're, and the paragraph doesn't make sense, you just reread the paragraph, and then it makes sense. So I, so let's read it again. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So God's going to kill Moses right after he tells him to go to Egypt. Then Zipporah took a flint stone and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, "Surely you are bringing blood to me." So I read it twice, thinking, and that made it worse. So that um, <laughs> it made it worse. So the first thing I thought was, I'll read it twice. Second thing I thought was. Um, what the heck, Luke Simmons, you know, like why did he, he gave me this, you know, this one? Then I thought, okay, so Zipporah, you know, the message of this is that when you're under stress, you behave erratically. Zipporah is under stress, she's behaving erratically. She's kind of lost it a little bit, right? So uh, she's stressed out about the journey ahead. And so you know how people are when they get anxious, they do weird stuff. So she's doing that and I'm like, no. Nope. So anyway, I read about 10 or 12 commentaries on this and, uh, I just kind of want to read to you some of the help that I got. So Brevard Childs is the best Old Testament scholar of the entire 20th century. And he says this, he says, few texts contain more problems for the interpreter than these few verses, which have continued to baffle throughout the centuries. The difficulties cover the entire spectrum of possible problems. My buddy, John Mead, has got a PhD in Hebrew. I texted him, hey, what's the deal with Exodus 4, 22 to 26? He says, ha ha, I'm pretty sure no one really knows what's happening. So. So I wanted to highlight this for a couple of reasons. One, I think that a lot of times people try to read the Bible and then they give up when they don't understand everything. You feel this pressure or people read the Bible and they feel stupid. And I don't like feeling stupid, so I'll stop reading the Bible. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people don't read the Bible very much is you read it, you don't understand it, you feel dumb. I don't like feeling dumb. I just won't read it anymore. Um, and I just want you to say that I, after reading 10 to 12 very scholarly articles on this, I have no idea what it means. And these people with lots of PhDs and the best Old Testament scholars, alive and dead, um, kind of said this doesn't make a ton of sense. What is bridegroom or blood? We don't really know. Um, it gets worse when you read it in the original languages actually because touch Moses' feet, that word feet there just means the end of an appendage. And so it could mean hands or feet or something else. So the longer you look at it, the weirder it gets, you know? And it... Um, but so here's the here's kind of the point I wanna make is, this is true both of God and of scripture, right? We cannot know God fully, he's infinite, we are finite. But we can know him truly, so not fully, but truly. That those parts which he's disclosed of himself to us, we can actually know, we can know that Jesus is God, we can know that God is love, we can know that Christ died and is risen, we can know these things truly but we can't know him exhaustively or fully because he's infinite. And it's also true of the Bible, that we can truly know what the Bible's message is, but we can't fully know every part of it. Part of that's cultural distance. Part of that is the ambiguities of Hebrew when we're um, English speakers. And part of that is, uh, I think, honestly, part of God's design to keep us humble that we can know the Bible truly, but we can't know it fully. Now the parts of the Bible which are, which are more opaque or less clear, um, actually almost never, and never I would say have anything to do with like the core tenets of our doctrine, what it means to follow Jesus. But I wanna highlight this for a couple reasons. One, I remember going to college and reading the Bible with skeptics, my friends who don't believe the faith and reading it and being like, why did nobody tell me about this crazy stuff? Why did nobody tell me about the silence of God? Why did nobody tell me about the parts of scripture which make no sense? And I just want, again, I want us to honestly be able to deal with the silence of God. And I also honestly want to be able to deal with the parts of scripture which are just weird or hard for us to wrap our minds around. So here's like the the overwhelming, like my best attempt at trying to make sense of this text right here is that um, somewhere along the line, um, Moses has given up on God. Right? Moses is a Jew, Jews circumcise their sons. We circumcise because um, it was a mark from Abraham that was to, to indicate that people are devoted to the Lord from their most intimate places. And God will let people to be reminded of the fact that, he's, that the Jews are set apart from the rest of the nations. And so, and so God told Abraham 400 years ago, circumcise your sons. And so, so Moses is raised in the pagan house. He's kind of forgot about the decrees of the Lord. Maybe he knew about them, but he didn't obey them because he was in Moses' house. Then he commits murder and he goes, you know what? I failed, I might as well just quit. He's out in the wilderness. Not only is he a murderer, but he's a covenant breaker. He's forgetting the promises of God and refusing to put the signs of the promises of God onto his sons. So, Zipporah, who initially seems like she's just behaving erratically because she's under stress, is actually in great wisdom recognizing that God is a God of justice he doesn't have one standard for Pharaoh and one standard for Moses. Rather, God absolutely upholds justice. And just as Moses was a murderer and a covenant breaker, and but God is against Moses' sin because he is for Moses. That sin actually dehumanizes us. Just like as God is going to resist Moses, or go to and resist Pharaoh's oppression, God loves Pharaoh. And the reason that God is resisting and saying no to Pharaoh is because he will not let oppressors continue in their oppression because when you act as an oppressor, you dehumanize yourself in a part in this regard. And so so Zipporah, in an act of wisdom, maybe she was warned by God, we don't really know, recognizes that Moses is a covenant breaker and a murderer. He can't go back and participate in what God's doing apart from first becoming faithful. And so Zipporah acts when Moses fails to act. She shows, up, she shows up for her husband's unfaithfulness and helps him by practicing the act that he was supposed to do a long time ago. The other point in highlighting this is that Zipporah is the sixth woman in a row who saved Moses' life. That that's been obvious so far is Moses should have been killed, but the midwives, but his mom, but his sister, but Pharaoh's daughter, but Zipporah. That Moses is kind of like born on the third base in this situation. That if he ever feels like, look at the life I built for myself, he cannot do that apart from recognizing that six faithful women propped him up when he was unable to prop himself up. This is true for a lot of us that if you have anything going for you, it's because faithful women propped you up it was their faith that kept you healthy. Maybe it wasn't women, but maybe it was somebody else, maybe it was men and women, but either way, all of us need to recognize that we are like Moses to some degree, that if we have faith or faithfulness or character or health in any degree, it's because somebody else gave it to us when we needed it. So what we learn here is just another picture of Moses' inadequacy. So the question is, so if God's not limited by our expectations, circumstances, or inadequacies, how does God handle it when we have inadequacies? Let's look at how he's treated Moses so far, right? So first thing, first protest, Moses protests about four times in this text. Verse 311, Moses says, but who am I that I should go? And the Lord says, stop doubting, loser. No, he says, I'll be with you. He sees Moses' sense of inadequacy and accommodates for it with his presence. The next time we see is right after, um, God is making these promises about deliverance in chapter four, verse one. Moses answered, but they will not believe me or listen to my voice. And I just pictured like the Lord, you know, I mean, he doesn't, he's in the bush, but he's going, I'm speaking to you from a bush right now. You know, take my word for it and just go do it. No, but, but Moses, God then provides additional evidence that Moses needs. The Lord said to him, what is in your hand? He says, a staff, verse three. And he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. The Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put his hand and caught it by the tail and it became hardened. It became a staff in his hand. This is a, a picture of what God is going to do to, Moses, to, to Pharaoh. He's saying, not only is this miracle kind of an interesting trick, but it's also like symbolic of what's about to happen to Pharaoh, that Moses, or Pharaoh is the snake about to attack Moses and God's going to give Moses the strength to stop Pharaoh. Not only that, but he gives him, he says, take your hand, put it in your jacket, take it out of your jacket. Now his hand has leprosy. So he can put it back in, take it back out. Now the leprosy is gone. So God is proving to Moses, see, look it. I'm in the business of authenticating my messenger. Please just go. I will I'll provide for you evidence. Go, please go. All that rambles out. And then verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, but I have a stutter and I'm slow of speech. At this point, it's like, it's literally, it says like God gets so angry and, he says, and God says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, deaf or blind? Is it not I? Like God's going, do you not think I know this? Like how dumb do you think I am? Like I made your mouth, I made your body. I know what's going on here. You think I'm foolish in the way I choose my messengers and my people? Some of you feel like that. Why did God choose me? Doesn't he know that I am blank? And God is going, yes, I know that that's how you are and I still wanna include you in my mission. I know what's going on. God is not foolish. He knows where you've been, where you're going, and how you've been, and how you will be. And he's including us in his mission. And so literally what it says in verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, that Moses' perpetual insecurity in the midst of God's providence is starting to make the Lord mad. He's saying, this is not about your ability, this is about my ability. Stop making this about you. So what do you think he's gonna do? I'm getting real sick of Moses' doubt and insecurity. Forget him, I'll use someone else. That's not what happens. Even in the midst of God being frustrated by Moses, he makes another accommodation. He says, don't you have Aaron like a brother or someone? Can he speak well? Just let, help him. have him help you. Okay, go get him. You know, I'm done trying to convince you of something you can't be convinced of. And God provides for Moses Aaron. To help him be compensated for his insecurity. This is how a lot of it functions, you know. Like, some of you are Aaron, some of you are Moses in this type of scenario, where God's using you to help accommodate someone else's insecurity, or maybe God's provided someone else to help accommodate for your insecurity. Either way, God's not limited by your sense of inadequacy or your actual inadequacy. Moses protests. He protests. He protests. Protests and the Lord provides, provides, and provides. See, this is what's good about what we see here in this text is that God is not limited by any of these factors. And we go back to this whole idea that God is gonna show us himself throughout the book of Exodus, that I am who I am. What we're learning about him is a couple of things, that he's a God who's not limited. But also, in, even in this text, we see that um, even the book of Exodus isn't a full enough revelation of who God is and how God is we see that here, that God himself appears in the fire, but there would be a better revelation of God, not in the fire, but in the flesh, when the person Jesus will walk and talk and act in pure faithfulness, saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Likewise, we see here that Moses, the stuttering, unfaithful, full of doubt, hesitant messenger that there's someone greater than Moses coming, and he was Jesus, who said before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus quotes this text saying, you think Moses heard about the I am for the first time? I am the I am before Abraham and before Moses. And it was even quoting that text that got him murdered for blasphemy likewise we see here in verse 22 that god tells moses go and tell pharaoh thus says the lord israel is my firstborn son you've been killing my sons guess what israel is my firstborn son israel is the inheritance israel is meant to represent the lord to the world israel is to be a light to the nations and guess what israel does right after they're freed from slavery they blow it they're a failed firstborn son they don't represent their father well But this is the beauty of the Bible, is that the revelation of God does not end with the unfaithfulness of Israel as firstborn son in the book of Exodus, but we look forward to the greater and the true son, the person of Jesus, who would be a faithful son to the father, who would perfectly and fully represent the father to the world, who would in all circumstances be faithful and not full of doubt and insecurity. And we see this, that this is the God who pursues us and uses us that just as Moses is not limited by his circumstances, expectations, or inadequacies, so also God's use of you and of me is not limited by our circumstances, our insecurities, our inadequacies, our circumstances. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your heart which you reveal to us in this text. Thank you for your capacity to be patient with us despite our protests. God, thank you that you're not hurried. I ask that as we see the way you revealed yourself to Moses, that we'd see how you're revealing yourself to us similarly. God, I pray for two people in the room in particular, those who have experienced you as silent for a long time. God, give them the freedom to pray with pure honesty, and I pray that you'll show up and help them see that you see and that you're working your timing. God, I pray for um, also the people in this room full of regret, full of shame, who feel like uh, they've lost the privilege of being included in what you're doing in the world. God, I pray that we can see that you use people who are a disaster like Moses, because that's the only people you have to work with. I pray that we can uh, begin to trust your character and trust that you reveal yourself to us over time. Amen.